Welcome to part two of this short leg episode on the famous Sydney Test match of 1894 between Australia and England. My name is Tom Ford. We finished part one at stumps on day two, with England three for 130. The next day was a Sunday, and so it was a rest day for the players. That is, no play. This custom continued, albeit not always exclusively on a Sunday, well into the 20th century. The rain which threatened at stumps on day two appeared on the rest day, and even on the morning of the official third day's play, the Monday. This was an age before cricket pitches had covers, so overnight rain affected the pitch to the batsman's ire and the bowler's delight. Once the rain had passed and play resumed, a pitch exposed to the sun would become sticky, as the players and fans came to call it, causing the ball to rise and break off the pitch to devastating effect. An 1884 update to the official laws of the game officially banned the use of covers once a match had commenced. Thus, the so-called golden age of cricket was rife with sticky wickets and players had to adapt as best they could. Especially in England, where summer rainfall was more prevalent, many matches endured sticky wickets. Old-timers believed it created a greater and more balanced contest between bat and ball. When Australia began the practice of covering wickets in the 1920s, it was no coincidence that it consequently saw the commencement of the age of Bradman and Bill Ponsford, enormous run-scoring machines who benefited from flat, easier-to-bat-on wickets. Anyway... I digress. Back to December 1894. The fourth day overall was the official day three and a Monday, and as a result, the attendance was about half of which had appeared on the Saturday. Ward and Brockwell resumed England's innings at three for 130 and fought off an opening spell of bowling with a dewy ball. Opener Ward eventually fell to Charlie Turner for 75. Bobby Peel resisted little and was even dropped early by Jones at slip, but was soon dismissed when caught by local hero Gregory off the bowling of Giffen for just four runs. England in trouble at five for 155, still 431 runs behind. Brockwell and new batting partner Ford added 56 runs in the middle session, before the latter was cleverly stumped by Captain Blackham, again off the bowling of Giffen. Almost immediately after, Ernie Jones took his first test wicket when he removed Brockwell, one short of his half-century. England now seven down for 211 runs. The visitors needed its tail to wag, and luckily for them it did. First Briggs played a cameo innings of 57, and wicketkeeper Leslie Gay made up for his numerous errors behind the stumps in the Australian innings with 33. Bowler Bill Lockwood who had contributed little to England's cause due to his shoulder injury in the field, even made an important 18 runs, before England were all out for 325, 261 runs behind the Australian total, and asked to follow on. With the wicket becoming increasingly sticky as the sun dried the pitch out, an innings defeat for England looked even more likely. Crucially, during the final session of day three, 
Australia's keeper, Blackham, had copped a blow on his thumb from a delivery from part-timer Jack Lyons, which split it open. Unable to keep properly, Charlie McLeod was forced to take the gloves. As England were dismissed close to stumps, it was decided to end the day then and there, with the visitors beginning their second innings first thing on day four. In the 19th century, these international tours were often seen as money-making ventures for the visitors, relying on gatekeepings to make the trip worthwhile, especially for the so-called shamachers in the side. According to writer David Frith, England's Archie McLaren arrived on day four and saw that the visitors were 50 to 1 to win, so placed four pounds on his side. Again, how times have changed. The weather was cloudy rather than sunny in Sydney on this day, which enabled the pitch to settle, instilling greater confidence in the English batters than in the first innings. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported, runs at the start came very slowly for the Englishmen, who knew what was before them. A steady opening from McLaren and Ward put 44 on the board, before McLaren was bowled by that man again, George Giffen, who had led the way in the first innings with four wickets to say nothing of his 161 with the bat. Captain Stoddart and Ward then took the England total past 100 and Giffen should have had Ward caught behind but substitute keeper McLeod let him off the hook as the injured Blackham watched on. Stoddart fell on 36 to Charlie Turner and it was two for 115, still 146 runs short of Australia's mammoth total. Ward's let-off proved pivotal as he continued to hammer the Australian bowling with a new partner, Brown, who also quickly found his form against a tiring Australian bowling lineup. Eventually, eight Australian bowlers were used, but none more stoically than the indefatigable George Giffen, who bowled a staggering 75 overs in this innings alone. More on this later. By tea, England had reached 183 for the loss of two batsmen, with Ward just two runs short of his century. As the final session began, Australia swapped wicketkeepers again, as they couldn't do without McLeod's bowling any longer, so Johnny Reedman assumed the role behind the stumps. Ward reached his century soon after and was roundly applauded. Giffen continued on and eventually dismissed the centurion for 117, and then Brown not long after for that for a cleverly made 53. England were 4 for 245, 16 runs short of Australia's total. With Peel and Brockwell taking England safely to stumps on day 4, they finally surpassed the Australian total, finishing the day on 268 runs, a lead of 7 runs with 6 wickets remaining. Stoddart and his men would have known they'd need a larger total than that to trouble this strong Australian batting lineup. The fifth day's play at the Sydney Cricket Ground wasn't necessarily the final day. This, like all test matches in Australia until 1937, was a timeless test, meaning they played until either side had a victory. Tests in England until the late 1940s were three days in length only, except for the odd English test here and there, which accounted for the many draws in English tests during its early history, not to mention the weather. Despite a promising start, England's two overnight batsmen added only a few runs apiece before being sent back to the pavilion. Brockwell clean bowled by Jones for 37, and then Peel played onto his stumps off Giffen for 17. England were suddenly 6 for 296, 
a lead of just 35 runs. Francis Ford and Johnny Briggs then took command and saw the team to lunch with a partnership of 48 runs. Resuming after the break, they continued to grow England's lead before McLeod, relieved of his keeping duties, broke through twice, first catching Ford off his own bowling for 48 and then rattling the stumps of Briggs for 42. These vital runs from the middle and lower order of England saw their total reach 400, a lead of 139. Lockwood, Gay and Richardson, who was battling a cold, all contributed handy runs and the England team were eventually dismissed in the afternoon for 437, meaning Australia had to chase down 177 for victory. Considering they almost hit 600 in the first innings, the players, press, crowd and dare I say English players thought it was Australia's match to lose. George Gifford finished his 75th over to go with his 43 overs in the first innings, a total of 118 for the match, which is still a record for an Australian bowler in test matches against England. With two hours left of play on day five, Lyons in trot strode to the wicket to face the English bowlers. Lyons tried to reach the total immediately, swinging wildly at everything and for a while it worked. He raced to 25 before Richardson found his stumps. The more cautious Harry Trott poked and prodded for his runs, but he was caught behind off Bobby Peel when the total was 45. The tireless Giffen and young Joe Darling then took Australia to stumps, looking solid at 2 for 113, needing another 64 runs with 8 wickets in hand. Even the most optimistic England supporter must have thought day six would be a walk in the park for the Australians. But as clouds gathered above them, there came upon the Australians just an ounce of doubt. Day six, and the seventh overall, has gone down in cricketing folklore. The Australians woke in full confidence, and when they looked out the window, it was confirmed that the 66 runs needed would be easy to achieve. As Ernie Jones exclaimed to his teammates at breakfast, it's all right, boys. The weather is beautiful. It may very well have been, but as the wise Jack Blackham entered the room, he bore a face, it was recalled by George Giffen, as long as a coffee pot. He looked at the all-rounder with sad eyes and remarked, It's been pouring half the night, George. He knew better than his teammates at what it would mean in the rising Sydney sun. It had indeed rained all night, and before the era of covered wickets, it meant the wicket would be soft, soggy and vulnerable. A sunny day, as Jones and others had boasted about, would actually make it sticky, meaning it would be a huge advantage to the fielding side. Umpire Bannerman later reported to the Sydney Morning Herald that fast bowler Richardson was able to cut the ball off the pitch a good foot in length. Arriving at the ground, Blackham's suspicions were realised. When Ned Gregory, Sid's father and the Sydney Cricket Ground curator, was asked by the Observer newspaper before the day's play what the pitch was like, he said, Oh soft, you can stick your finger in it. It's been reported through the decades, although it appears more fanciful storytelling rather than fact, that some of the English cricketers had a wild night out the previous night to drown their sorrows at the prospect of losing the test. Bobby Peel, in particular, arrived at the ground still inebriated, much to the disgust of his captain, Andrew Stoddart. One retelling also mentions his drunkenness, 
but puts it down to him having five teeth extracted the previous night, so his alcohol consumption was medicinal, not emotional. Either way, Stoddart needed to sober him up, especially with strike bowler Tom Richardson still not fully recovered from his illness. After a quick shower, legend has it that Peel said to his captain, Give me the ball, Mr Stoddart. I'll get the buggers out before lunch. Sport and hindsight often have a way of concocting such stories, and then they stick. Whether the drunkenness happened and shower prophecy actually said is irrelevant, because what happened on the field is even greater a story. The two South Australians, Giffen and Darling, resumed their partnership in front of a smaller Thursday crowd, of about 1,500 paying customers, presumably because everyone assumed the result was given. Initially, the batting pair looked in control. Darling reached his half-century in his test debut before attempting to hit Peel out of the ground and was caught by Brockwell at long off. Five runs later and Giffen too was dismissed, this time LBW to Briggs. Australia were now four batsmen down and still needing 42 runs. The new batsmen were Frank Iredale and first innings hero Sid Gregory. But the relentless bowling of Briggs and Peel on the increasingly impossible sticky wicket was becoming too much. First Idow hit a plum catch back to the bowler, Briggs, and then Australia was in all sorts when Gregory was caught behind by the fumbly gay of Peel. 19 runs were still needed and only four wickets in hand. In the blink of an eye, England had arrested momentum. Reedman, in what turned out to be his only test match, was unlucky to be stumped by Gay when the ball ricocheted off the keeper's chest onto the stumps for just four runs. In the pavilion, injured captain Blackham was reported to have been pacing up and down, repeating the words, cruel luck, over and over again as the Australians collapsed. With Reedman's dismissal, 18 runs were still required. The next man in, Turner, managed just two runs before being caught by Briggs off Peel. Eight for 161. 16 runs still required. Ernie Jones came in and tried to blast his way to victory, but only managed a single before being caught by McLaren off Briggs. 15 required, and the injured Blackham with his thumb heavily strapped walked onto the test arena for the final time. He joined a helpless McLeod in the middle, who had seen Reedman, Turner and Jones dismissed in quick succession. Blackham poked and prodded for a couple of runs before the man of the hour, Bobby Peel, lured the Australian captain into driving down the ground, only for his hit to land in the hands of the bowler. Caught and bowled for two runs. Australia all out for 166. England won the test by 10 runs. Remarkably, Australia lost its last eight wickets for just 36 runs. The collapse was speedy and complete, wrote Sydney's Evening News. Wicket after wicket went down, and when the last fell, Australia was still 10 runs in the bad. Bobby Peel, drunk or not, was the hero with 6 for 67, ably supported by Briggs with 3 for 25. In his autobiography, With Bat and Ball, from 1898, George Giffen explained, With 586 runs on the slate, we never for one second dreamt of losing the game. Such was the magnitude that many records were broken in this extraordinary test match. It was the first test to reach a sixth day. The total runs scored, 
1,514 was a new record. Australia's first inning total was its highest on home soil. George Giffen became the first player to score a total of 200 runs or more and take eight wickets in a single match. And for the first time, a side had won a test match, having been forced to follow on. Most remarkable about this last statistic is that in the 130 years since, such a thing has only happened again three more times. England defeating Australia at Leeds in 1981, India defeating Australia at Kolkata in 2001, and New Zealand most recently when it defeated England at Wellington in 2023. Of course, what added to the fabled story of the 1894 Test match was what followed. The remaining four Test matches that summer led to a remarkable conclusion. Blackham, unable to recover from his split thumb, relinquished the captaincy and his place in the team, the keeping duties falling to South Australia's Afi Jarvis and Giffen ascended to captain. After a week's break over Christmas, the second test began at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. Each team was skittled out for small first innings totals before England captain Stoddart hit a career-high 173 to arrest control for the visitors, eventually winning by 94 runs. England 2-0 up in the series. On the 11th of January 1895, the third test began in Adelaide and the Australians won the match within four days by 382 runs, thanks largely to a 140 hit by Frank Iredale in their second innings. This match is perhaps best remembered for the all-round debut of Harry Trott's younger brother Albert, who hit more than 100 runs across both innings and took 8 for 43, opening the bowling in the second innings. The fourth test returned to Sydney in early February, and Australia, again, won, making up for its December calamity. This time, it was a shellacking, winning by an innings and 147 runs, having dismissed a deplorable England for 65 and 72 in each innings. With the series level at two wins apiece, it all came down to the fifth and final match in Melbourne. This match witnessed a great deal of run scoring as both sides were desperate for a win. Needing 297 runs in the fourth innings to win, England looked vulnerable at 2 for 28, before a 200-run partnership between Ward and Brown, the latter scoring a famous 140, put the result beyond doubt. England won the match by six wickets the series three games to two, and retained the Ashes. The local press praised Captain Stoddart and his team for their victory and the manner in which the series was played. The Adelaide Advertiser even warned its readers that depression was now likely to set in that the series had ended. But of the 1894 Sydney Test match, Wisden, Cricket's annual Bible, put it best. This was probably the most sensational match ever played in Australia or in England. And from our perspective, 130 years later, it's still hard to argue with that. Thanks for listening to this short leg episode of the Golden Age of Cricket podcast. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to listen. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to this podcast so you may never miss an episode. My name is Tom Ford, and until next time, it's bye for now.